Yeah, so, so here we are. As, as Mike said, it is the last Sunday before Christmas, and it is the last of the, the Advent series. Um, if you haven't been here over the past few weeks, um, as a church, we've been looking at some of the key characters um, in the story of the birth of Christ, um, narrated through Luke's Gospel. So um, Kate talked about Mary, then we spoke on um, Joseph, and then last week was the shepherds, and this week it is Anna and Simeon. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how you're feeling, but, but I feel I'm a bit stitched up here, really, because in the, in the timings. <laughs> because, <laughs> because as we build up to Christmas, and we're, we're all feeling increasingly Christmassy, we're opening our advent calendars, the, the tree is up, the presents are being wrapped, we're drinking lots of mild wine, and we're, we're going to parties. As we're building up, so we reach the least Christmassy topic in the advent series. Um, I, I want to sort of paint the, the picture through the, um, through the school nativity. Um, so we, we've, we've got Mary and Joseph, they're there. The shepherds are there. The angels are singing in, in the highest. Um, you've got the cattle lowing. But by the time you get to this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, everyone's gone home. The, the school nativity is over. The, the school is empty. The humble tea towel has been demoted from critical prop to just the... the demoted to drying dishes. And if we, if we were to walk into the school now with our dressing gowns on, we wouldn't be ushered to the stage. We, we'd just be told off, I think. We'd just be told off. Um, but don't get me wrong, I understand the logic behind this. I think it's much better to, to end the school nativity with the, the shepherds quietly by the manger, R- rather that than a, the awkward circumcision scene eight days later, or, or perhaps, perhaps Mary and Joseph sort of going to the temple with their, with their two turtle doves to, to slaughter them as a sacrifice before the Lord. Um, but clearly for Luke, this isn't the end of the story. And, and actually, um, many, many sleepless nights have passed and, and many dirty nappies are also um, before, um, from, from that heavenly encounter with the angels. Um, but for Luke in this chapter, in chapter 2, um, his message of the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, and the significance um, that he wants to put on that in, in the Gospels, he hasn't yet reached the Advent pinnacle. Um, so this is what I'm going to be talking on, talking on today. Um, but beforehand, I'd, I'd like to introduce myself, as Mike said. Um, my name is Peter. I've been here with my beautiful wife, Anna, for about 18 months. Um, and when we arrived in London, this was the first church that we actually went to. And, and when we arrived, we didn't feel like we had to look anywhere else, actually. We felt like we were, we were home. And so it feels like a real um, honor and privilege to be asked to speak. Um, today on, on Sunday, and, and I've done what I'm taught. I've been I've done what I've told. Mike told me to shave. He said I can't be scruffy. Um, <laughs> he told me not to start with a picture of him dressed as Santa Claus at the yard, which he dressed up as on, on Tuesday. Um, actually, the only tip I didn't follow, and, and Tom Tom Creedy isn't here, but he'll probably be listening in. He actually told me to wear a tea towel on my head when he heard that I'd lamented it wasn't the most Christmassy of uh, topics. He said, "Look, just just don a, a, a Christmas prop, and you'll be fine." But uh, I decided not to do that. Um, now, now, as I said, the passage we're focusing on today um, is about Anna and Simeon. And actually, it's a really difficult passage to speak to. There's so much um, going on in this passage. God is speaking to us so much behind the text um, about who Christ is and how we should receive him. Um, so I want to just encourage you, actually, if you have time um, later on the week, just to go back to it and read it. It's one of those points in Luke, in Luke's Gospel, that looks to the Old Testament, but also forward to the New Testament. It's looking back to the old law, but also you see the promise of the new covenant and the New Testament that, that, is, that is to come. 
Um, and I, I've really spent time digging into this scripture and working out what is it, what is it that God wants to speak to us um, about today. Um, so I'm just going to read the text um, and then I'm going to pray. If you do have your Bibles, please open them. Um, it will come up. It is up on the screen. Normally at this point, I've got two, two donuts in my hand and a, a cough in the other. So I'm really thankful that it's up on the screen because I can't hold my Bible. Um, but if you do, please turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Um, the passage goes on to verse 40, but I think we'll be speaking here up to about 38. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to God and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it says in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought him in, in the child Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, I really like Luke's account of the birth of Christ. I think if you're looking at this account in Matthew, you read something quite different. You read about Herod. You read about how Herod responded to the rumors of the Messiah. You read about the Magi that came from the east. And then finally, you read about how Joseph and Mary actually have to flee to Egypt. And you get a real sense of the impact that the Messiah had on the worldly authorities right from the outset of his entry into the world. But in Luke's gospel, he captures something slightly different. He captures the, the humility of Christ. Um, we heard from Lydia last week um, th- about the amazing contrast with the glorious king of kings and his birth uh, being proclaimed on a hillside to shepherds. And it's no different actually moving into, into, this, into this passage, starting from verse 22. Um, we have Mary and Joseph walking to Jerusalem um, to dedicate Jesus to the temple. And they offer this sacrifice of two doves and this is a, a sacrifice associated with the poor. Um, in Leviticus 12, verse 8, um, which actually talks about the specific sacrifice in question, it says, if you, if you can't afford a lamb, you should offer two doves. And it goes on. As, as Jesus is being dedicated, he doesn't meet a royal procession. He just meets this old widow and this old man. 
Um, and yet in this moment, um, which is a, is a very humble moment, God proclaims his salvation plan for the world. And he proclaims um, his, his plan for the redemption of Israel. Now what is, what is taking place um, at the start of this passage? Well, we, are, we, are rock, we are rocking through the slides at a, an amazing pace. If we can go back to the Bible, to the second slide, that would be brilliant. Thank you. Um, so what is taking place? Um, in verse 21, which, which actually isn't in this passage, um, we're eight days from Jesus' birth, um, and he, Jesus is circumcised and, and named Jesus. And from 22 to 23, um, we move forward in the series of the Jewish custom that any abiding Jewish parents would follow. Um, and we see these two customs which Mary and Joseph perform in, in the temple. The first is to provide a sacrifice associated with the, the purification of the mother, and this normally takes place um, 40 days after the birth of the child. And this is, this is where the two doves get involved. Um, and at the same time, um, Jesus, as the firstborn child, is dedicated to the Lord. Um, I, th- this custom comes from the time of Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, and in Exodus, uh, Moses says, consecrate. Well, God says to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. And so this is what... Joseph and Mary do. This is their firstborn son. So they take him to the temple to be dedicated. Now I just want to stop here for a second and just acknowledge how bewildering this must have been for Mary and Joseph. I think we, we've sensitized, sensitized the nativity story. We've, we've heard it, or we've, we've um, heard it um, in the play, in the school plays. We've, we've seen the comedy nativity movies. We've heard about it every Christmas. We hear about it being preached. But we really forget how mad this situation is for Mary and Joseph. You're, they're walking to Jerusalem, having given birth to Messiah. Um, and, and they're walking to the heart, of the spiritual and cultural heart of the Jewish people, with the Messiah, the Son of God. And it might be their own son, but they are dedicating God's son to God. It, it, it must be mind-blowing for Mary and Joseph, who, who aren't really trained in any form of theology. This is, this is serious stuff that they're involved in. Um, and... As, long, as well as it being mind-boggling, I think it must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, just weeks ago, angels filled the sky. Imagine, I haven't, I've not been involved in giving birth as of, as of yet, but many of you might, might have been. Imagine on the day of your birth, angels filling the sky. That, that's just an additional thing, really, to worry about, isn't it? And, 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 and now that they're walking to Jerusalem with the Messiah, if angels filled the sky when he was born, what on earth is going to happen? What, what is going to happen when they get there? Um, and this trepidation, I think they would have felt this because the, the, this month, this 40 days, would have been so unexpected. If, if you look at the account of, of Luke, if it had consistently been just trumpets and angels, they could have predicted what was going to happen. They could have put on their Sunday best. They thought this is going to be brutal and amazing, but we're just going to get on with it. But, but actually, the Messiah was proclaimed through the mouth of angels, but then passed on through, through a bunch of shepherds. And this is the equivalent of a sort of a lost Domino's pizza man turning up at your door to tell you that the son is the Messiah and then give out free pepperoni pizza. This is the equivalent of who the shepherds were. And, and that, that juxtaposition of, of like the glory of God and the, the meekness, I quite like that. I quite like that example. Um, the, and, the, and the meekness and, and messiness of God, it must have just been world-shaking. For, for us, it doesn't come as a surprise because we know who Jesus is. But for Mary and Joseph, 
They didn't know who the Messiah was. They didn't really know anything. And this was all new to them. They thought, how on earth is the Messiah being treated like this? Every day would have been a surprise, I think, to them. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's not um, the focus of the passage. But, but isn't this so like God? Isn't this so like the, the Alpha and the Omega, the glorious God, to display his glory through something which is so simple and so meek? And it's no less glorious. It's just not what we would have expected. It's not how I would have done it. He, he uses the foolish things to, to shame the wise. And, and I don't think God's changed at all, actually. This is the God that I can relate to. This, this is the God that shows up in my life in the, in the strangest of places when I'm on the floor in my living room or in McDonald's driving, on a, driving to see my parents or in Starbucks or in the, the lift at work. It seems to me that, that God clings to the lowliest of places in, in our lives. That's where he's present. And, and right from the beginning, this is how Jesus um, was revealed. And, and I don't know about you, and this is the first takeaway for me, it, but I need to ditch my ego because, because God, isn't, God doesn't operate in the type of glory that I'm used to. The glory that we see here in Luke 2 isn't the type, type of glory that the world has taught me about. God wants to, turn, wants to turn our world upside down in the sense that as Mary and Joseph were walking to Jerusalem, they didn't know whether to expect this worldly glory of trumpets and royal processions or just more men covered in chipu. This isn't, this isn't their definition of glory at all. Um, I just, wanna, just want to read um, a passage which is read quite a lot at Christmas. It's Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and I think one of the questions God is asking us today is, is will you receive me as I am? And as I am in, in the stable, as I am revealed in Jerusalem, not in a way which is considered of worldly glory, but in a way which is my glory. Brilliant. Um, so this is next, the slide of the first introduction. Brilliant, we're there. Um, now this is the first time that Jesus went um, to the temple. It was also the first time that he was in Jerusalem. Uh, and as, as the scriptures shows, it doesn't show whether this is a public um, dedication or whether, it is a, is it, or whether it's something that's more private that happens just between Mary, Joseph and, and the priest. Um, but either way, it's definitely significant. If we, if we look at Luke, we see that it will be another 12 years before Jesus actually comes back to the temple to teach or to talk with the teachers. And that's actually later in, in, this, in this chapter. It will be 29 years um, before John the Baptist actually starts preaching about the coming Messiah. And then a year afterwards, so 30 years from this point, that Jesus actually begins his ministry. And I think for the, for the Jewish readers of the gospel, the expectation would have been palpable. This is Jesus the Messiah. His name is pronounced by angels in the sky. This is, this is the saviour that they'd waited for for over 400 years. I think it's, it's incredible that Isaiah actually prophesied the coming of Jesus 700 years before this point. For me, this is like that time in the movie where the, the hero gets into the tank or, or uh, what's, what's he called? I've completely forgotten his name. Um, Iron Man puts on his suit and, and, and starts giving it to the bad guy. It's that point where everything was going wrong and now the hero is in the sea, in, sort of takes, takes the, the foreground and um, you just know things are going to change. And this is what 
the Jews reading this would have thought. They would have thought the Messiah is coming to Jerusalem. Everything is going to change. Um, But actually, that's not what we see at all. Rather than this big fanfare, what we see is is Jesus being privately dedicated. We don't see anything. We don't don't see any of that. There's no man in a tank kind of moment here. Um, It's just his dedication. And, And it's revealed to these two individuals, everyone in Jerusalem, just two people, and this is where we, we are introduced to, to Simeon and Anna. So why, why does God do this? And, and, even, and, and why does Luke feel the need to put these two, this conversation between Anna, Simeon, and, and Mary and Joseph at the forefront of his Advent story? Um, I think in the context of, of Jerusalem waiting for the coming Messiah, I think God is wanting to teach us something about how we should receive him. And I just wanted to touch on what that means, because how we should receive God is quite a spiritual phrase, isn't it? And, and the question I have in my head is, is what does that mean? Um, for some of us here, we might, we might not be following God. We might not know what that means. And we might be thinking, what does it mean to follow God? Or should I be following God? And, and for, other, for other of us here, we might have been following God for a long time. Um, but I want to go back to, to Isaiah, to the name that Isaiah gives the Messiah, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I think that the, the lessons that we talked about today apply to how we receive God every day, how we receive him in our lives every day. It's not that glorious first reception of God necessarily, but it's in day in, day out, how do we make God the center of our lives? So if we move on to the slide with the painting on, that would be great. Brilliant. Um, I'm copying Kate here. Um, I put this painting up for a few reasons. One is that I really like how um, Kate actually used paintings of Mary um, in, in the first sermon. And actually, I think there was someone behind me who knew a lot about art, who kept on whispering the, the sort of artists and the dates. Um, and that, I, I thought that was very impressive. Um, and I was planning to do the same. I'd Googled the name, I'd Googled the date. I wanted to sound all cultural and, and intelligent, but actually I couldn't pronounce the name. So it was, it was, it was done from the word go. I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy, sorry. Um, but I, re- I do really like, I don't know if you can see it, just... I feel like this painting really captures some of the joy and wonder that, um, that Simeon and Anna would have, would have felt when they, they met the Christ. Uh, it, it's interesting, actually, Simeon and Anna aren't mentioned at any other point in the Bible, and, and this is the first and last time, really, that they get an airing in, in the Scriptures. And, and Simeon, specifically, we don't know very much about at all. We, we know almost nothing about him. Uh, we know that he was in Jerusalem, but not necessarily living there. Um, it's implied that he was, he was old. We also know that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to visit the temple courts on that day that, that Mary and, and Joseph were there. Um, and I think there's some significance in this lack of context um, in, that Luke's gospel gives to Simeon. You, have to, you just have to flick forward to Luke chapter 3 in the gene- genealogy of Christ to know that Luke can do his homework and he can get stuck into the details when he wants to. Um, and, and maybe Luke didn't know who this figure was or maybe he chose not to tell us. But what he does tell us in verse 25 is that this man is called Simeon, that he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So consolation meaning to console or to comfort, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And I think for Luke, that was all he needed to say. Perhaps this was sufficient justification for why God chose to reveal Jesus to him. Um, Perhaps the first person in Jerusalem to which the Messiah was revealed. Um, in a culture which is all about what you've done and what you'd achieved, who you are, um, the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus as the Messiah to a man who was devout, who was waiting for him, and who was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Um, Luke tells us a bit more about Anna. Um, Anna was a prophetess of the tribe of Asher. Um, she was 84. Um, but the key information for me is not her age, um, but how she spent her life. Uh, it, it says that she was previously married um, and widowed after seven years. And if we take an indication of um, the, the age at which Mary was married, um, she was probably married in her teenage years um, and therefore widowed in her 20s. Um, and, and if that was the case, it would have been customary or there would be an opportunity for Anna to get married again, to, to basically have another, have another family. Um, but she didn't do that. Instead, she chose to remain a widow. And, and, and it says she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Now, I'm sure that her life wasn't as simple as that. Um, and, and I'm sure that it was filled with messiness and indecision and, and, um, and to some degree that sort of uncertainty. But what we know is at this point in time, after six, perhaps 60 years of being a widow, that she was in the temple day and night. Uh, and, and Psalm 84 says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. So we've met Simeon and Anna. What, what can we learn about them? The, the sort of core, the core message um, of, of this talk is, is the points that we can learn. And there's, there's three points. Um, there's a lot that we can say about them, but I felt there were three things that God wanted to say this morning. Um, the, the first one is this one, indeed, yeah. The, the lifelong journey of putting God first. Um, for me, the, this meeting with Anna and Simeon it isn't just about God meeting, revealing his glory to the lowly and the humble. It's pinpointing what he treasures, who he reveals himself to, and what we should aim for. God is saying, of, of everyone in Jerusalem, of all the thousands of people waiting, it is these two people that I want to, I want to meet first. And, and this is a poor analogy, but, but if Obama comes to London, um, or Theresa, Theresa May, when she first took office, um, the question was, who, was, who were they going to meet first? Who are they going to talk to first? And the reason is because who we meet and the order we meet them carries a lot of symbolism and meaning, and it shows our priorities. And here, um, God is essentially saying, these two, these two I sort of set aside. And these, are, these two people are, are people that have developed a longing for God over many years of their lives. Even before the Messiah had come, they had... They had made the longing for the Messiah their central point of their life. They didn't even know who he was. And yet, he was at the center. Verse 29, Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant. For Simeon, that was all that he was keeping him alive, is, is the Messiah. That, that's quite incredible. Um, and I, I travel a fair amount with my work, and, and actually there's nothing better than coming back from landing into Heathrow and seeing my wife waiting for me. It's that sort of movie moment, isn't it? Um, and I was expecting all sorts of R's. And, but, you know, <laughs> um, similarly, I, um, I leave London, I arrive in countries where I work. And I'm also met at arrivals. Um, but I'm met by a driver. It's his job to, to meet me. And, and um, that's, he, just, he just wants to meet me and get his job done. But when Anna meets me at arrivals, it's just for me. And, and I think that, that speaks to something here, is that both Simeon and Anna have been waiting for the Messiah all their lives. And it's flavoured their lives. Anna is dwelling in the, in, in the temple, fasting and praying. And for Simeon, he has this relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is quite extraordinary, I think. Obviously, the Holy Spirit isn't in him, but it, but it is on him, around him, and close to him. And, and I want to use this point really as a point of challenge. It's not about a pair, compare and contrast. Oh, I really wish that I was like Anna and Simeon, or I'm really not like Anna and Simeon. Um, I think we can romanticize people like Anna and Simeon in the Bible. 
I don't think it was easy or natural for them to have this longing in their lives. I think this took years and years of, of working at to actually get to this place. Um, and and I, I think it must have been a challenge for them not to, to be distracted by the busyness of day-to-day life. I'm sure there were times when their plans for the year or the two years ahead risked distracting them from the love and longing for the Messiah. But, it, but in Simeon and Anna, we see lives of simplicity um, whittled down and refined to that place where God is their one thing. And I think what better people to welcome the Messiah. And, and something that I want to touch on when we, when we get into prayer is, is the question of whether God is, where is God asking you to put him first? Is it in that busy day-to-day of life? Or is it in your plans for the year or two years ahead? I'm, I'm sure we all have plans, whether it's work or family or friends. Um, or is it actually at, that, at the heart of who we are? Uh, is, is there a distraction away from who God, who God is um, in who we think we are as a person? I'm just going to go back to Psalm 84, and it says, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So that's my first point. The second point is named, they receive him as he is. Great. Yeah. Um, now, Anna and Simeon were not the only people waiting for the Messiah. I think that's pretty, pretty obvious. There were thousands of people in Jerusalem waiting. I think it's hard for us to comprehend the magnitude of the Messiah for the Jewish people, um, especially at, at this time. Um, we sit in a different part of history. For us, the Messiah has already come. For us, he is already here. But for the Jews then at that time, it was someone that they were longing for and waiting. He, he was going to be the instigator of, of their salvation. Um, and this was, this was someone who, um, as a young person, you would memorize scriptures about the coming Messiah. Um, and as an adult, you would hear about the Messiah in the synagogue. But he, but he hadn't yet come. It was just someone they were waiting for. Um, and I imagine that there, there would have been a question that was regularly spoken about. When, when will the Messiah come? Um, and and maybe perhaps at the Passover or other festivals, similar to the new year that we're coming up to, um, they might look forward to the year and say, do you think the Messiah is going to come this year? I'm not sure. They might, they might look at things like the equivalent of Donald Trump on, on television and think, is that a hint that the Messiah is going to come? I don't, I don't know. And, and, um, and, and indeed, many of them would have looked at the political situation and, and prayed, send us the Messiah. Um, at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod ruled the Jews. He actually called himself the king of the Jews and ruled under Roman authority. The Jews were a subjugated people. And Jerusalem was occupied by this, this, this Gentile nation, the, the Roman Empire. Um, and for many, the Messiah was a political figure as well as a religious figure. Um, he would restore this physical kingdom. He would defeat the Romans and set up this Jewish nation. Um, and, and, and whilst this isn't really what we would all take from the prophets when we're reading Isaiah, this is something that was, was widely seen and, and talked about, I think, at the time of Jesus' birth. Um, and this makes sense, right? The, the God of the Old Testament held up the, the nation of the Jews through military conquest, and this is what they were expecting. And, and I think this is probably why, um, why Herod was so worried when he heard about the Messiah, and why in Luke 23, when, when Jesus was arrested, he was arrested for inciting a riot. It was because people assumed this is what the Messiah was going to achieve. Um, but but we, we, we know differently we sit in a different part of history and we know that that's not what the kingdom of God is about. In John 18, when Jesus was arrested, he said, my kingdom isn't of this earth. 
And we know that his kingdom is of heaven and is very different, very different to what a lot of the Jews would have expected. And for Simeon and Anna, um, they, they share this understanding with us. Um, Simeon talks about the Messiah, Jesus, being a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory um, of your people, Israel. And both Anna and Simeon were waiting for the redemption and consolation of Israel. This isn't conquest. This is a different type of salvation. And I don't want to sort of weigh on too heavily on this point, but I think it's really significant that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the first two people he meets understand what he's about. And, and I, think that, um, I think that's significant, considering how many people misinterpret who Jesus is. Um, so so what, is that, what is the application here? That, that's, for me, that's the big question, I think. And I think there's a deep contrast between Simeon's longing and waiting for the Messiah and how many of the Jews would have been longing and waiting for the Messiah as a means for political change and political empowerment. I mean, I hope, I hope none of us have, have got a harboring ambitions to overthrow the UK and that's, that's our prayer life and we just wish God would just get on and, and do that so we can become prime minister or, or whatever title we want to be called. But, but I am guilty for coming to God um, and seeing God as a means to achieve my personal ambitions and, and desires. I often see God, like the Jews, as a, as a means to an end and perhaps similar to the Jews, that end isn't necessarily fully aligned with God's plan. Um, and I imagine that might be the same for, for some of you as well. Um, perhaps that desire is more about um, becoming secure or getting ahead, whether that's at work or, or in an other area of your life. And, and these desires burn deep. They burn deep inside us, and often we misinterpret um, them as our salvation. Um, I think that the Jews saw public determ- um, they saw political determination. They saw freedom from, from the Romans as their salvation, and this was their expectation for the Messiah. And, and I think this is something we're guilty of. We, we put our hope, the hope of salvation, in the hope of God's provision. And as a result of that, we feel hopeless when the provision is delayed or it comes in a different form. And for me, this really struck home. I put my hope, which is meant for, for, the salvation, for God's salvation, I put that in God's provision in my life. And so when it's delayed, I feel hopeless. Um, and this is something that's really hit home. And, and I think... If we look at um, verse 34, maybe this is, this is what um, Simeon means when he says that, um, when he says that the Messiah is going to be contested. Um, it's, he's going to be a symbol that's opposed. Um, because cause there's been times in my life where my desires for my career or, or maybe where I'm, where I'm living or, or just different parts, are, I feel they are po- opposed by God. When I, was a, when I was a graduate studying here in London, I lived under the stairs in a house in Islington. Now, we've all walked past these fancy houses and wish we'd lived in them, but you don't wish that you'd live under the actual stairs. Um, these weren't in- this wasn't an insulated room. This was actually just under the stairs, and this is where I stayed. And, um, and God taught me something very clearly in that, my, in that time. He he'd said, Peter, my goodness is not dependent on... My, on your circumstances. And, and actually, God really tackled a lie for me that God's purpose was to fulfill my career objectives and to give me a comfortable life um, in the world's eyes. Um, I think this is something we see throughout Paul, um, the life of Paul and Timothy. Both um, were happy with little. They were happy with imprisonment. Actually, there's times when they were imprisoned, but they saw um, that they could live the life that God had for them. And this is why Alpha and, and the gospel message is so compe- compelling in places like prisons, where people are not free, 
but they can see that their salvation, they, can, they are still able to receive salvation. Um, I think that if we're in a place today where we put certain circumstances before Jesus um, and, and we're looking at finding comfort and resolution in our circumstances rather than Jesus, um, we need to come to the cross and see the Messiah that Anna and Simeon were waiting for. Um, I don't want to spend too much longer on this. I have all sorts of fun things I want to say about feeding the 5,000, and actually I, I won't go into that. But, but this is a mistake the Israelites make a lot. Actually, in the desert, they look to God for his provision, for manna, for security, for water, rather than looking to God. And you fast forward thousands of years towards the 5,000, and again, people flock to Jesus when he gives them bread. But when he says, I am bread, in, in John 6... They just think he's a weirdo, and they just, they just sort of leave him. Everyone, everyone leaves him, and we're the same. Well, we're at risk of being the same. We're at risk of putting the provision of God before his face. And I'm just coming into to land with this final point about the Holy Spirit. And, and I think this is really interesting. I get, I get suspicious when the Holy Spirit is there um, in, in parts of the Bible before the Pentecost or John 14. I'm thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's, you haven't really been introduced yet. What are you doing? And, um, and, and, and we, we can see it here. There's three times. The Holy Spirit was all over Simeon. And for me, this is such a relief. Because the points that, that come out of this, this, um, this text are that we need to put God at the center of our lives. We need him to be our one longing. And actually, all those desires that conflict against that, we need to give to God. And Anna and Simeon have done this. But it's clear that Simeon could not have done this without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that was, was in him and around him that, that even allowed them to recognize Jesus. They, that was the reason they recognized Jesus. Jesus was just a baby coming into the temple courts, but they knew instantly who it was because of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this morning, I think our prayer should be um, that God would help us develop that longing for him, that God would align our desires with his purpose and would let us find our salvation in him. And, and I'm not saying that God doesn't answer our prayers, or see our situation. Um, but, I, but I think that this morning, some of us will walk out without that resolution to our situation, but we can walk out with the peace of God being in control. Um, and I just wanted to leave just with that scripture again, Isaiah 7, which is that in this passage, the sign, God shows us the sign. The son, conceiver of a virgin, is there, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us.